Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There is energy in this world and, and like there is these things going on and I feel that when things have happened for me, I, I can see a direct correlation between my positivity and the energy that I've been putting in and the result that I'm getting out. That's Hayden Cox and this is episode 175 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. And as always, thank you to Toe Hider for our opening theme. Find him on Twitter at Toe Hider, all one word. Uh, thanks for joining me. This is episode 175 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and today we're speaking with Hayden Weir. I am speaking with Hayden Cox of Hayden Shapes. Uh, you can find him on Twitter, Hayden Shapes. I believe that's all it is. Let me just triple double check. What's happening? Hayden Hayden Shay. Should have really checked this before I started recording. Yeah. You can find him on Twitter at Hayden Shapes. You can also find him on Instagram at Hayden Shapes. He's a fascinating guy. More about him in a moment. Thank you to everybody on Patreon who's supporting the show just by pledging a couple of bucks a month about the price of a, a fancy cup of coffee. or well, not even a fancy one if you live in my neighborhood. It's just, you know, a cup of coffee. Five bucks a month will get you access to the exclusive episodes that are being updated way more regularly now. There'll be one out this week. Uh, if this podcast does bring you value, please consider helping this show come along uh, each and every week by putting some money 
towards Andy Ma, my producer, and Hayley Vance Bunyan, my production coordinator. Without these two people, the show wouldn't exist. And without you, I'm not able to pay them. So please remember the podcasts are free to listen to, but they're not free to make. So if podcasts are a great part of your life, please think about donating or pledging money at patreon.com slash osher. Uh, If you don't have the money, that's fine. If you don't want to, that's fine. All I'd ask you is that you... Put, either put in a, in a review on, on iTunes that really helps the show or if you just show a friend how to listen to the show and get them to download it, that'd be uh, that'd be really, really great. Um, so thanks very much. I had a great week. Hope you had a good week. I, it was my birthday this week, which was nice. I can't tell you how much of a wonderful day I had. Uh, we started work at a quarter to midnight on the Tuesday night, so I was 15 minutes before my birthday and the, my hair and makeup um, artist who I've been working with for a long time now, uh, Carla, and Mel, my wardrobe assistant, and Stevie, who's my production coordinator, they all got together and they uh, decorated the the green room and there was cake and it was bloody lovely. It was really, really nice. And then I got home uh, pretty late, like 3 o'clock or 3.30, went to bed, woke up to come and do radio here in my office. And uh, the room is full of balloons and happy birthday signs. Audrey and Georgia made a big surprise for me. And... Um, then, as I do after work that day on Wednesday nights, I managed to get my regular poker game happening, which is uh, super lovely because Audrey was working late. We were unable to have a dinner together on the night of my birthday. She's like, well, you should go and spend it with the, the poker boys. And she even made a vegan birthday cake that I could take with me. So my, you know, dairy smoking, vape clouding, whiskey drinking poker friends enjoyed some delicious vegan tasty treats on a Wednesday night which was really lovely and it was it was beautiful it was so beautiful she's such an incredible incredible woman it took me a long time to accept a loving gesture like that from Audrey um it's kind of difficult accepting loving gestures like that from her it's it's the night of my birthday she's working late she wasn't going to get home until dinner time she said go ahead it's poker go go be with your friends take take this cake with you now, I don't know why, but it's kind of hard for me sometimes to accept that kind of love because inside me there's always this, you know, suspicion of, you know, what do you want in return? But you know what? With her, there's no one in return. That's just the kind of love that she gives. She just, she wants, she just, it's full. Like even even talking about it, I get all choked up trying to talk about it because I, I grew up in a family where we didn't kind of do things like that we were very loving towards each other but we were loving in very different ways and it it's i've had to learn how to accept loving gestures i know that sounds weird but i've had to figure it out i've had to learn that my life is a much richer place when i do accept the love that Audrey has for me and indeed the love that others have for me. I'm not saying that everyone loves me. How awesome am I? But honestly, for a long time, I didn't really feel worthy of any kind of love or or positivity, positivity um, to the point when people expressed an appreciation for something that I did inside. I thought, oh, you're just saying that because you feel sorry for me. I know that sounds weird to say, but that is legit what went on in my brain. Um, for a long time, I honestly believed that I was employed because, um, people were doing me a favor. It took me, I think it's called imposter syndrome or something like that. It took me ages to accept that I was actually good enough that I'd been given a job because of merit. Um, but now I have this woman in my life who's just the kindest, kindest woman I've ever met and the most thoughtful unselfish person I've ever known. Uh, 
and she makes me laugh my ass off every time I'm with her. And she's also super hot. So, uh, I mean, I had to put a ring on it, you know? But, yeah, she's, she's really taught me how to, how to accept love, loving gestures, love and affection, and accept her support in, in many ways. I'm pretty lucky because she married me even though she knows I'm a bit screwy in the brain department. And, I mean, we've, well, this is coming into month four of being married and as we move into our life together as husband and wife, I've, I've kind of have to beat myself into submission to allow her to help me, uh, not only in my personal life but in my business life as well. And since she's been more involved, her advice and direction, what do you know, have helped enormously because... Again, as happened in my life, my best ideas, the most creative I could be was only getting me so far. But once I started listening to another person's thoughts on what I might do with what's in front of me, particularly her thoughts on what I might do with what's in front of me, things started getting better. Life started getting better. Work started getting better. I'm a very lucky man. I'm a very, very lucky man. Um, she's off at work today. So um, just me and the, and the dog that was asleep over here last night, we had... Uh, Three 13-year-olds on the sofa bed in the couch and the lounge watching H2O, the mermaid show, before uh, Mako Mermaids, the original. It was squealy. That's all I could tell you. Squealy. It's a lot quieter here today. It's just me and the dog because everyone's off doing things on a Saturday. Uh, let me tell you about my guest. I'm so stoked this fella came over and his beautiful wife. Hayden Cox is a revolutionary surfboard designer from Sydney, Australia. And about 10 years ago, he disrupted the traditional way of making surfboards, much to the chagrin of the incumbent players, but he patented a new way of, of making surfboards, which also gave surfers a completely new way to ride those surfboards. Now, even if you don't like the beach, even if surf terrifies you, even if you never understood surfers or surfing, just listen. Listen to Hayden's inspiring journey of how he created his business while he was still in high school, how he followed his passion relentlessly, and he created something world-beating along the way. Hayden's an absolutely lovely human. He came to the house with his wife and business partner, Danielle. They even brought me coffee, which is the way to my heart. If you ever come over for a podcast and you bring me coffee, it's going to be great. Guarantee it. Hayden's got some really brilliant business ideas. He thinks about business and the industry in a completely different way to anyone that I've ever met. Um, and even if, as I said, even if you're not into surfing, the way he talks about business and, and how his industry is, it, it, I found it enormously helpful, even though my business has nothing to do and my life really has nothing to do with surfing. Not as much, no, not at all, actually. His desire to really kind of shift the way his interest, industry is focused is, is quite fascinating to listen to. And I'm sure that you can apply the lessons that he has to your own life, no matter what scale of, of change that you're trying to make is, you'll be able to hear something of value in this. Hayden outlines a lot of what we talk about in his book. Uh, his book is called New Wave Vision, which is easily one of the best business books I've read. And certainly, if you're interested in the new way the global economy is moving or the new ideas of how business is, is being done in uh, this kind of more global economy, 
or even if you just need a kick in the pants to get your own work moving along as an entrepreneur, not an entrepreneur, and the entrepreneur being disrupting from within a system and the entrepreneur disrupting from without a system. Uh, you can absolutely get a lot of value out of this conversation. I'm so grateful um, that he came along. Go and get his book. It's called New Way Vision. Go and ride one of his surfboards if you can. Hayden Shapes, which is, as you'll hear, the business that he made up in high school, and it's now <laughs> worldwide. Or don't, or just listen, because this conversation's a real gift. So come and sit at my kitchen table in Bronte in Sydney on the Eames chairs with surfer, shaper, businessman, and disrupting entrepreneur, Hayden Cox. Hi, Hayden. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you. Welcome. Yes. You came to the dark side for me. I came to the dark side. My, my wife actually convinced me to come to the... Well, she didn't have to convince me. I convinced myself because she's an amazing woman. And I moved to the dark side from Monabal after three months of knowing her. So um, I had two years in Bondi, at North Bondi, and loved it. And I uh, opened my eyes up to another part of Sydney. And uh, that was before we moved to LA and spent five, the last five years in LA. Wow. So yep. there's, there's a lot there. I have lived in Bondi. And when I first moved to Sydney, I had no idea about the northern beaches versus eastern beaches <laughs> thing. It's one of those territorial things that happens yep. in, in beach cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't quite get it and, until I was body surfing at Narrabeen one. This is before I even surfed. Yep. I was body surfing at Narrabeen one day and I nearly got cut in half. Because they no no regard for anyone swimming flagged in the water. You down, flagged you down there, mate. Yeah, mate. I was right into body surfing before I started surfing. So Amazing. I, I would only go out in like yeah. quite a big swell and I really enjoyed it. Oh, it's so much fun. Yeah, it was I, I've done it a bit over in Indo when the waves are perfect and nice and clean and, you you know, you can play around a bit. But yeah. Yeah. It's something else. How long have you... Are you back from LA? Are you... Yeah, back from LA. Kind of moved back July last year and um, kind of been resetting up life over here. Yeah. And um, it's been exciting. Yeah. Um, you know, getting back in tune with the factory in Monavale and the office and the and we got a new shop up in Monavale, which has been exciting. That's a, a, just over a year old now. So, I mean, I think naturally I just keep myself extremely busy and my yeah. wife keeps me busy and her busy too. Yeah. So, um, I don't think that's ever going to change. So, I lived in Los Angeles for, for 10 years. I came back at the end of 2015. Yep. In November 2015. What was the biggest thing you noticed when you came back to Australia? Oh, the biggest thing. I mean, the sense of kind of a little bit smaller, like a little bit more uh, smaller communities, you know, you feel like a little bit more in control and in touch of, you know, who's around you and and what you're surrounded by, like schools and things like that. And probably not growing up in LA, Mm. you do know that you are almost like a a tourist or an expat over there, enjoying all the energy that that city has to to offer. But um, But without those connections that come from growing up in a city. Yeah, exactly right. So, like, I never really got a sense of, like, well, where would I want to live if I was going to live here full time? Mm. And um, it was always a challenge. I think Malibu would be, you know, a nice place to live. But, I mean, I've probably got to make a billion more surfboards to afford a house up there. So that ain't happening. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's one of those things. It's... I, I really enjoy going there. We still have our um, office and our distribution and sales over there um, and definitely um, not done with the American market. Where uh, were you over there? We were in, in Venice and yeah. our factory and our office was set up over in um, El Segundo, oh, right. so right near LAX, very conveniently placed to get on the QF12 or 11 getting back well. and forth. I mean, I would 
have to jump and it's part of the commitment when you're in business is like I'd have to jump on a plane at, at last minute, get on a flight, go back yeah. 24 hours, sort something out and then get back to whatever project I was working yeah. on at that time and, and that's just um, was part of life living in LA and, and having your responsibility responsibility split between two mm. kind of major locations. And Mate, that, that was what I did for, for 10 years. I, yeah. lived on, I lived on 29th and, and Pacific and between then, Speedway and Pacific. Oh, amazing. So cool. on, the, on the walk streets. Yeah. That's uh, definitely full of colour down there. Lots of energy. About 10 blocks south of the complete mayhem. Yeah, okay. Anything yeah. north of 20th was just a bit too... And it is crazy over there where one block makes all the difference. Mm. You can be like 200 metres away or 100 metres away from, from mayhem and then it's all just calm. Yeah. And it's all peaceful and it's... Uh, You'll be at Ocean Park and you're like, everyone's doing yoga on the grass. Yeah. <laughs> very, very different to 200 metres up the street. Yeah, I'm a... The, uh, I would go to a, a, a meeting. Yep. Uh, I don't know how to put this. I would go to a, a, a meeting of a fellowship that I'm a part of and it was next door to a sports bar. On the other side was a weed dispensary. Yep. Across the road was 13 homeless people sleeping under the awning of a $3 billion company called Snapchat. Yep. That was on Market Street. Market Street. Yeah. Yeah. Just incredible. Yeah. Right, that, that sort of stuff happens. But you're, you're right, it's a lot, a lot of energy and... Um, as you get further south towards where your office was, El Segundo, that's where mm -hmm. the, the waves kind of get a, a fair bit better. Definitely. Wintertime is like my favourite time yeah. over there. And I think it's just the sense of like the Norwest swells that come in, you get those bluebird days where everyone yeah. loves snowboarding and all that, but that's nice offshore winds, Northwest swell. Yeah. Um, and you get to surf some reasonably good waves, which is um, one of the things that you do miss and you take for granted being in Australia is that we're surrounded by an ocean that's very active and very close the energy is very close to where we are and so that happens a lot quicker quicker and you your mind's consumed by the change of the weather patterns except for the last month that's just rained every day yeah. in sydney so well that's awesome it's southerly town yeah a mate of mine just came up he lives in calabasas which is the mountains yep. behind malibu and he's been here for the last week he's going man the ocean's just angry every day <laughs> i'm like no this is weather this yeah. is what happens when you don't live in southern california yeah, actually this changes it all the time yeah and that's one thing I do really love about being back here is that that change. You know what I mean? I mm. think it brings out a lot more sort of um, opportunity for creativity when it comes to surfboards and designing surfboards. And you're throwing all these different conditions and you're testing your boards out in a range of conditions rather than just a set, very consistent sort of conditions like LA. And, yeah. you know, you look at the, the Californian surfers and like Tom Curran, like their styles are so groomed and so... So perfect. Yeah, but when you're surfing eight-foot swamis, you yep. know, on an off day yep. and it's just this massive peeling wave mm -hmm. that just goes for days, yep. you just don't get that on no. the, in the Sydney beach. No, you don't. It's short, it's fast, it's changing yeah. and you get probably pretty uh, energetic and, and upbeat and kind of crazy, craziness that, uh, you know, like Tom Carroll is a great example of, of growing up yeah. in that in Newport and just – the, the, the speed of like what you're working at yeah. and it's uh, I think it just breeds it into you being being growing up in Sydney and um no I think it's um I love it though it's good fun it's we'll good come, to be we'll, back we'll come back to Tom but I did you just reminded me then of one of my favorite I've, I've like you I've not probably not as much as you but I've seen a lot of surf videos right yep. and, and particularly now that you can just watch them on your phone yeah swatch heaps but I still think one of the most compelling surf videos I ever saw was Taj Barrow, I think it was at um, Duran Bar, and yep. just slop, just yep. onshore slop. Yep, it must have been maybe hip high. Yep, and it was just extraordinary watching what this guy could do on conditions that everyone else would be like, "No, nah, I'm not going out today." Yep, 
it was just amazing watching what he could do there. Well, Taj, obviously, for a lot of surfers out there, has been such a huge influence and someone that we've all looked up to for his energetic approach to, to riding waves. And he even talks about himself like, geez, sometimes I've just got to friggin' slow down on the wave. I just want to do everything in every move. And, uh, you know, when you watch those guys and the guys at that level, you can you they really start to shine in those conditions which are challenging and i think in today's kind of format of surfing and the progression of where surfing's going it's like the guys at the top of their game are really shining through in those conditions which are big and ugly and pretty crazy but they're landing the biggest maneuvers because of the different winds and the energy of the wave and how they can hit a ramp and do huge airs like john john is probably leading the charge on that front and it's it's pretty cool to watch. I mean, as as someone who designs a product that they do ride to go do that, sometimes it, it boggles your mind to go, geez, I didn't realize that a board could actually even do that. Yeah. So it's hard to even relate to sometimes designing a board for someone who's doing those kinds of moves because you can't even experience it yourself. Like, yeah. geez, I'd be stoked if I did a, just a frontside <laughs> air. <laughs> so, I mean, you got to – I mean, that's one of the challenges as a surfboard shaper is to – really start to understand these really minute and intricate sort of feelings that the surfers are having without being able to experience it yourself when it comes to that higher level. Um, but that's where for myself I feel like I can relate to the everyday surfer that's surfing Bondi Beach because I'm at that level. And it's, you know, for me when I get to experience a board that I've designed and then my team ride it too and they love it, then I feel like I get this really good balance where it's like, okay, well, lots of people can ride this board. And it's going to stoke a whole heap of people out. So, like, a good example of that is the Hypto Crypto, which is probably the board that I'm most well-known for, is a board that I actually designed for myself to surf Mona Vale. And I, my feedback was from riding the board in Mona Vale and it's riding the beaches. And Craig has gone on to ride that board in some of the, the craziest and, and most beautiful waves across Indonesia, and it's still his favourite board. We always joke about, like, you know, is he ever going to fall out of love with that board? And the answer is probably no. It's his old faithful. You get a few side girls on the on the way, but yeah, that's his old faithful. But girls, you're talking about surfboards like I talk about bicycles. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The bicycle game's an interesting one to look at. They are they're, uh, they're definitely innovating a lot with the e-commerce side of things. Oh yeah, and yeah. it's always I don't know if it's if it's the same as surfboards. I don't surf as much as I used to, but um, it's always n plus one, one more bike than you need, but one less bike than you want. Yeah. <laughs> and they're sure expensive. Just, Bikes are expensive. Oh boy, yeah, it's the same with surfboards, I'm sure. Uh, do you remember? Do you remember the first time you stood up on a board? I don't remember the first time I stood up on a board because I was four years old. Wow. Um, but I, I've got memories and like kind of like photographs in my mind of like where I did first surf was down in Caves Beach in Jervis, Jervis Bay, um, and I was. Um, you know, Mike was on my brother's board. He got a surfboard a year before me and I got given a foamy bodyboard, but I didn't want to ride that because my brother was standing up on a board. So I'd sit there and wait on the beach and when he would come in after two hours of being sick of it, I'd grab it and go try and get a wave. And he would always stand up and I'm clumsy. I'm kind of a slow learner, but I, I'm pretty persistent. And um, I do like to figure it out for myself. And so with the surfing side of things, yeah, I, my, my dad was like, oh, my God, my half a son's not very good at doing this, but he'll get there. <laughs> and maybe after the two years, I was standing up in the whitewash and, and catching waves, and I just loved it. I think I, at a young age, I think I started to really relate, like, the understanding of, like, what the board was doing. I was really interested about the surfboard, whereas my brother was more focused on just, 
I'm just doing this thing as surfing and I can, it's like playing soccer or running on the friggin' you know, down at the park or like playing on the swings. Like my brother, it was just an activity for him. Whereas I sort of got more engaged into like, oh, this is my board and like kind of fell in love with my board and I'd put in my bedroom in a special place and I, I became attached to my board. And I think the reason why I probably fell into my career is because at a young age, I kind of fell in love with surfboards and surfing and, and just everything that came about that with that. Did you live near the beach at the time? No, I didn't. I grew up actually on the northern suburbs of Sydney in Gordon. I um, went to school at, at Knox Grammar, which is a, a private school up on the northern beaches. So, you know, all the other surfers who lived down at Newport and, and that would call me a Westie and, and kind of laugh at me. So how like, long would it take you to get to the beach? Oh, half an hour on the bus. I mean, so you would take a bus with your precious surfboard? Oh, hell yeah. I was on – once I figured out, my mum didn't tell me actually you could get, actually get to the beach in Sydney. For me, it was always camping trips and, and holidays I associated with surfing when I was young. And then I figured out, no, you can get on the, on a bus. I had to catch a train to school and I figured out, well, I can get a bus and there's, there's Monavale just down the road. So see you later. I was gone every weekend from, from then on and I'd surf all of Sydney's northern beaches. Because I, I, I wasn't a local at any beach, I, I was just looking for the best waves and, and that was fun, searching for, for waves. And I think that's a big part of surfing. The culture of surfing is searching for waves and looking for, for new locations to surf and um, you know, that would take me all up and down the east coast of Australia, across Indonesia. So how, how old are you catching the bus by yourself to go? 13. 13 years old. Well, my first day at school, I caught the train to school with my brother. Yeah. Wasn't given a lift to school. No. My mum's tough love. She's very much <laughs> tough love. So, yeah, even early on in my career, my mum was definitely, you know, probably a little bit disappointed that surfboards was my choice in career because she probably didn't understand it. And even even my wife didn't understand what a surfboard shaper was when she first met me. She was just like, oh, so do you make, do you work, you know, make boards for Quicksilver and Billabong? And I'm like, no, 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 they, they don't make surfboards. Quicksilver and Billabong, they like, they're known for wetsuits and board shorts. Where I'm a surfboard shaper. So, I mean, I, I understand how my mum didn't really understand what, what it would be and, or what it would, could come to, but in my mind, I was, I was learning and studying business studies and I knew like this big picture vision of like what I wanted to do. I wanted to be this global surfboard shaper and, you know, the brand, you know, being known all around the world and the people riding my boards, but I still had no idea how to shape a surfboard. So how, was, hang on. How old were you when you had this vision? Oh, I was, I was 15. I was studying commerce and business studies at school and I, I, I'm only interested in doing things that I'm interested in. And for me, I could relate business studies back to a surfboard company and that made sense to me so I started like business studies right and, and it was only at that point that okay well every assignment's going to be on this like faux brand Hayden Shapes that didn't really exist and so I'd write all the international business studies assignments and business studies and all the case studies would all be about this brand Hayden Shapes <laughs> which was a mate basically a, a made-up brand or was in the early days of being formed and for me that was exciting it was like stuff doing it on Coca-Cola or, or the, all the other sort of typical case studies that people I just made up this brand a surfboard brand and told everyone I was a surfboard shaper at parties and I'd only shaped a couple of boards so I kind of had to basically go live up to my uh the, my words that I was telling everyone and and had to go actually I was talking before I could walk and so I had to kind of prove myself that I could uh, you know maybe get there just back it, back it up a little bit. When did you realise that you were a little different from the other guys at school who probably weren't getting on the bus on the weekends and going down to the beach? Um, pretty early on. I, I mean, like I was always grown, brought up to be independent and, and to do things for myself and, and find my own opportunities. And, and I did that from, you know, when I was probably 12 years old working paper runs and, and other sort of part-time jobs. And 
I just realised when, I mean, that was all I was interested in doing. So I just went and did that. You know, all the other crew at, a, at, a, at the school, especially a private school on the North Shore of Sydney, is like they're interested in rugby. You know, even playing soccer, you're an outcast. So, I mean, I was already semi an outcast, but I, I, I was able to, like, find my own way and that's what I was interested in. I think my mum taught me to be stubborn with that and to just follow what you want to do and not to be too consumed or worried about what others are doing. I think that's really helped me carry through in business where, you, you, you know, you want to know what your competitors are doing, but you don't want to be so consumed with what they're doing that you're going to copy and follow what they're doing. It's good, great to have that awareness, but you want to, you know, sort of be in your own lane and sort of follow your own sort of ideas and passions and, and dreams of what you want to do. So I think in, in school for me, I just saw that, oh, well, yeah, I'm making surfboards and I'm a surfer and I play soccer and I like that, but surfing's my, my thing. Right. And so I started up the school surf club and, and today there's surfing's a sport at the school. Right. So, yeah, it was kind of because I told the, the head of the sports sort of department that I'm not playing basketball and soccer anymore, I'm surfing. And you need to recognise that as a sport. And I'll, I'll, and then they're like, no, nah, can't do that one. I will, I'll make it a sport at the school. So, yeah, that's how surfing became a sport. How did that sport. happen? Well, so I, did, was it a, was it a, like a note from school, Hayden doesn't want to do this, Hayden doesn't want to do that, and you turned up and you said, listen, this Australian, this Australian, they're world champions, it's a sport, let me do it. Yeah, well, I kind of, yeah, and so I, I got the sponsor on board, got the surf shop, uh, my mate's dad surf shop to sponsor it, I got the judges who were, you know, talented surfers surfing on the WQS and competitively surfing and rallied together all the surfers from year seven to year 12, and I think there was like 15 of us at that point, and um, yeah. There, there we go. We had enough crew to, to have a little contest. And, uh, I mean, today I went back and uh, had, a, had a chat to the kids in Year 10 Business Studies at school. And, um, I mean, there was like about 45 kids in that year that surfed and were take, taking part of surfing. So, I mean, like, that's one super exciting thing for me to see is, like, you know, the progression and the growth of surfing. And, and the more people that get to experience surfing, they, you know, it grows our sort of industry and it grows our sport and it's great to see people you know enjoying it when so. you do go to back to schools and you do have those conversations well number one that must be inc incredibly um satisfying and just a really wonderful thing to be able to share that and be the person that wasn't there for you yep. when you're a young man but do you look at these uh young men and because it's an all-boys school i'm guessing do yep. you look at these young men and go do you see the same drive and ambition that you had when you were 15 in these kids do you see them distracted by other stuff Oh, I definitely see the same drive and ambition. I don't think that's ever going to change. You know, I think at, the challenge is is for every kid to find something that they can relate that drive and passion to and, and to find a reason of what they're learning to, to kind of channel all that learning back into something that means something to them. And once you find that, then that's, you know, the, I think a catalyst to, to actually go on and sort of really grow and prosper in, in a career or, or just following something that you like to do. And that might be running your own business or it might be working for another business. It doesn't matter. It's it's just finding that thing that will mean that your life has, has, a, has a cool purpose and there's, there's a whole different range of things that that could be. And it, it kind of, it will sort of motivate you and, and sort of, you'll feel sort of like great as a person. You'll wake up every day with, with something to do and you'll sort of help others out and, and be inspired by others and, and inspire other people. And, you know, it's that's, that's the beauty of, I think, when people do find that. And I saw that in these kids when I was back at school and you, even though they, you could see that they're still searching for some something, they're at least trying everything. And I think that's one thing to always have is, is always try it. It may not always succeed and that's those failures that you will have will make up 
your eventual sort of growth and your path to growth in the long run. It seems pretty clear to you what that passion was. What about people who are listening that might not know what their passion and purpose is? How would you find it? Just try heaps of different things and, and something will stick. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't, don't hold back and go, oh, I don't like to do that. Go do those things. I mean, like I personally probably never love to, to talk in front of people or, or really deal with human resources in business or even come on a podcast and, and speak to an interview with someone. But, you know, my wife has sort of encouraged me and helped me along the way and, you know, you, you start to get more and more comfortable with those situations and you get less anxious. You sort of you learn how to sort of settle those nerves and then sort of enjoy the process and, and that all comes about from just trying it. And it may not stick. Hey, it may not be for you, but you'll go try something else and you'll figure it, you'll figure it out. How did you know? What was the tell that you had aligned your passion and your purpose? Um, I think for me, it crept up slowly. It wasn't just like an overnight thing. And Hayden Shapes has never been an overnight sort of sort of project for me. And I think that's really important when you do go after something where you are in charge of it yourself, whether, it, you know, you'd be like a, like a business, big or small, like it's going to take a long time. And so for me, I, was, I just started from sort of running basically a cash business in high school, shaping boards for teachers and friends. And then I left school and... GST came in and there was an opportunity to get 500 bucks from MYB. So cool, I'm going to get MYB and now I'm going to take control of accounting. And now, you know, I'm 24 years old and I've got my own factory. And, and it just kind of led from one thing to the next. And I enjoyed all those processes along the way and I still enjoy it. And I still have got a lot of work to do across all the different departments and I'm still learning about a lot of things. So for me, I, I just slowly built building blocks and, and got, I suppose, more serious about things. And it just started to come together and I think where I made a, a real decision like this is what I'm going to do was probably a couple of years before I got my own factory um, but it, it shit got real when I got my own factory. I started employing staff, I had responsibilities, I had rent to pay and those commitments that I made to the business, like I had to like, nurture those commitments. But you're, you're a 22-year-old bloke in the Northern Beaches. Most yep. guys have got, I've got a ute. Yeah, and that's about it. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll be down the course every Friday and Saturday night, and I'll be surfing on the weekends, yeah. and that's what I'm doing until I'm 30. Yeah, well, I was still down at the course I partying. I still was <laughs> surfing at 5 a.m. I was doing all my surf trips, traveling overseas, running my business. I mean, my energy levels must have been pretty high. I, was, I, I, I probably just never, never stopped, and I probably still don't stop really. But for me, I mean, I was able to maybe just section out the, the part of the business and for me uh, that was so fun i was learning so much and i still am so i, I it's, it doesn't feel like work for me it feels like i'm going to have fun today no matter what i'm doing I, I, even cleaning a, a new factory out is is kind of fun and interesting to me i don't know why but maybe because i can see of like what i might build from that moment you know what i mean and you've got to be able to roll out your sleeves and enjoy all those sort of dirty jobs to, to see that they are going to build and, and create something bigger picture in the long run. So it sounds to me like you are really, really switched on by the idea of, of creating a space into which a possibility can happen. Yep, totally. And I think that was one of the things that I saw when I, you know, designed and wanted to get in the space of, you know, innovating a technology in the circle game. And for me, like that was what it could be. And no one was really playing around with, you know, performance-related technologies. They were building technologies for surfboards that would make them more durable and last longer, but they didn't surf that great. They weren't going to be, like, ridden by the world's best surfers and perform at the highest level. And I was like, well, 
that's what we need to I need to be doing and I, I want to jump into that space and I want to learn about that because I had no idea I only just figured out how to build a surfboard start to finish two years prior to that so I mean like designing the technology which is known as future flex has been you know a huge thing of like me putting my ideas into a finished product. For, for, for folks who've never, who, who see a surfboard and they go, well, that's a surfboard, they can't tell the difference between yep. a shortboard, a, a fish, a, a male, whatever. Yep. Uh, can you explain what, what the future flex technology is? So we have a surfboard, the traditional way and the way that the surfboards have been built since, you know, the late 60s is they have a wooden stringer down the centre with two bits of white foam on each side, polyurethane foam. And you put some resin and fiberglass over it to, to give it its strength and, and to make it watertight. And it looks like a, a surfboard with a, a, a line up the center. What I've done is I've changed the whole material set out and replaced each one of those materials with a different material in the, in the sort of the right design to kind of give it an amazing feeling. But it looks like almost like a tennis racket with a black frame around the outside. So there's no wooden string up the center. It's all white in the center. It's got this black frame around the outside. So they're very identifiable when you walk down the beach. You see these black rails stand out from a mile away. And that's the carbon fibre and that's a parabolic carbon fibre frame, which is the, the painted design that I sort of uh, came up with back in 2006 and launched in 2007. So for me, like, oh, I saw, like, what it could be. It was like, I can potentially design something in the surfboard space which is going to change the way people see technology in surfboards and you know, the boards that they want to ride. These are lighter weight materials. We can still make them durable and it can perform better than any other surfboard out there. And it's still customizable. So everyone can get whatever board that they want, whether it be a fish, a mow, a shortboard, whatever board you want, because I know everyone's tastes are different, you can get this technology in your board. And it was just an idea of what that could be. And it basically the idea of what that could be has never changed, but the commercialization of that was something that I found extremely challenging because you're working in a very sort of stagnant industry that hasn't changed much since the 60s and in many 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 cases the people that ran the surfboard business were the people that first ever paddled out they were the, still the same old guard exactly exactly right there's, there's not a 60 70 year old guys exactly yeah. right and i'm what 27 years old you know this young friggin grom that they're going to look at and go well stuff you i'm not going to listen to you so i had a lot of challenges within the industry to kind of mentally change people's perception of what that is. And that takes a long time. And I, I basically end, ended up bankrupt. I, I came to a point three, four years into it that the, the commercialization model that I chose, I thought was going to be the right way to do it. And it ended up not being. And I still held on to the whole idea that like, no, this technology feels great. The product was there, but I just potentially hadn't thought about the right way to, to go about bringing that to market. And that took a took a fair bit. It was a pretty tough moment in life where I needed to kind of be very humble and sort of get rid of an ego and like kind of step back and go, well, well, how else can I do that? Maybe I need to build my confidence that my shapes could be the main boards that are going to be made in that technology. And I need to think of a different way to build enough boards and get them out to everyone in the world. And I, I looked at a way to do that and I went down that path and, and back myself which is a very new path for the surfboard industry to to especially in the performance end of the industry is to to you know go over to Thailand and work with a, you know a factory that's extremely well known for building great boards but building performance boards out of there and the you know for my vision I was like well I want to sell boards everywhere around the world and I want the consistency of the product to be the same for everyone and that doesn't mean that mean that I was going to 
rather than use 20 factories around the world, I wanted to use one factory to really control. And that meant I put everything on the line for that. And it didn't work out the first time. And, I, you know, nine months in, it was like we had to destroy a whole heap of boards because the quality wasn't right. But I learnt my lesson from earlier in my career where I had to stand by that because this was a bit of a, a make-or-break situation for me. I, I, it was my name on the boards. It was my name, Sam, my reputation in the industry, and I had to get it right. There was no second chance with Tell this one. Tell me what the – you said you got – you know, you're around some difficult financial times. What did the what did the bottom look like? Oh, I was almost half a mil in debt. And it was like, you know, to... You- Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Take me through through the day when you went, oh, all right, this is it. What was it like? Well, you know it's coming. You you know it's there. But you're holding on to this idea that things can get better. And that's, you always got to have that no matter how dire straight you're in. And if you're in a business for yourself, you're going to have those moments where you always have to hold on to that, like there's a way to make this work. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a lonely road. I'm up in my factory up in Monabal and it's probably like 7 o'clock at night. You break down, you cry, and that lasts 10 minutes and you realise, well, no one's going to come pat me on my back. So, all right, let's think about this maybe in a different way that I have been thinking about it and maybe accept that, the decisions that I had made were, weren't the best ones that I could, could make and how am I going to do this? So you have to search and you've got to look outside of like what was so set in your mind and how stubborn you have to be to, to go after that. And so you step back and you start looking at it and I'm like, well, who sells the most surfboards in my industry? Whether they be performance boards or this or that and that led me to a, a company called Global Surf Industries and I, I, I researched them and I looked at their model and I'm like, well, Greg Webber's shape, you know, got his boards on their program. I see those boards in every single surf shop. That's obviously working pretty good, you know. Like, check out the quality of the boards. I'm like, eh, I don't really, you know, like the quality. I think I built a better board, and um, you know, so obviously that's that's going to be a challenge to overcome. And you know, you, you just started to look outside of where mm. I was at, and and I, I came up with the idea that you know, the technology that I had, I knew the product was right. So, you know, surely it's something that this distribution company is going to want to have in their lineup of, of products that they want to sell. And, you know, so I, I cold, cold reached out and, you know, reached out and sort of put a pitch together. And for me, I, I analysed my strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. And I put a SWOT analysis together for, for Mark Kelly, the CEO of that company. And I showed him how, like, my strengths were his probably weaknesses in his business at that point in time. And if we came together and, and collaborated and, and had it formed a partnership... And I was 100% committed to what I could deliver on. He needed to be committed on what he could deliver on and would have, you know, a successful partnership. 
And it took, you know, that, that sort of 18 months to, to, to form that, get it right and to, to get there and it came together. But I think that was me analysing, you know, what my strengths were and what my weaknesses were and, and searching for how I could improve my weaknesses. You, you talk about it, and, and thanks for sharing that, but you talked about a particularly dark moment when all these ideas that had led you to this place of incredible success started to not work. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds to me like you were alone and you realise the only person I have to thank for me being in this situation is me. Like all the other people or whatever other reasons had disappeared and you had to really assess the ideas that had brought you to that point. I mean, there's always your friends and family that are around you for sure and you, they do support you and they always provide a lot of, lot of love and support, emotional support from that front. But ultimately, it's my decision. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's me in the business by myself. Hayden Shapes is still 100% owned by myself and my wife. Um, back then it was just myself and so I'm the one that's having to make that decision so that's the lonely part is like you can't rely on someone else to make that decision for you you're in charge of that and whether you're, you're, you're running your own business or you're working in your own career you still are the, the bearer of your own decision you can't have your boss tell you what to, decision to make whether to apply for that job or, or, or hit them up for a raise or you know maybe think about changing a career that's your decision so same as when you are in your own business like that's my decision to make so I, that's the lonely part where you know you don't know what the decision is to make and you know you basically you're up shit creek really and well but you're still holding on to that that belief that no I can get there and what to have it what can you gain by what can you gain by taking that responsibility I mean it's the control and that ownership that you made that decision yourself and that it in the long run, you look back on that and, you've, and you end up learning something from taking that control and, and making those decisions. And that is the development and the growth that you'll go through in whatever you're doing that enables you to become wiser and better at what you do. So having those challenging moments, I see them as always opportunities to become better at what I do. And they happen for a reason. I, I am a believer in energy. I'm, I'm not a, a religious person, but I am a believer that things happen for a reason, karma, energy, and you want to put as much positivity into every day that you live and there'll always be negativity there, but you have to approach the negativity with a positive mind frame and, and, or mindset and, and look at all those negative things as opportunities to, to grow and develop. Where did, this, uh, where did this alignment with the energy come from? Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, well, okay, I'm not so- very... I, I don't know. I mean, I think... Even just sitting out there as a young kid waiting for waves to come in. It's like you see all your mates catch heaps of cool waves and like, it's like, why aren't the waves coming to me? And it's because I like, you know, you're sitting there in a negative space. If you're sitting there and you, you sort of got your mind, you're sort of interacting with the environment, you're watching and you just, it's all subconsciously and you're all sort of happy and you, you're going, you, you feel this energy of like the waves come to you. And I think that happens with a lot of surfers. You wonder why all these amazing surfers in the world sort of always get the best bloody ways it gives you the shits really but it's because that that they sort of in that space they're so calm and they're like it's it just they're just naturally sort of in sync with what they're doing and i i think that if you sort of sit back and reflect on that and you watch that you start to realize that there is energy in this world and and like there is these things going on and i feel that when things have happened for me i i can see a direct correlation between my positivity and the energy that I've been putting in and the result that I'm getting out. 
Like the technology that I, I designed, I was reading a book called Mind Power at that particular time. And it was all about controlling your mind to be in that positive state of mind in the now. And that was a very short and very easy book to read, but it was so powerful in, in sort of just me sort of dealing with like all of these crazy thoughts that I had and all these ideas that I had. I was able to really kind of focus and control those thoughts and put them into a place where they could be acted upon and, and moved into in the right direction. Was so. it like was it like that moment in Back to the Future where he falls off the toilet and draws the flux capacitor? <laughs> where, did you remember a moment where he went like carbon fiber parabolic rails? That's it. Yeah, it was four in the morning and I was asleep. What? I, no, come on. Yeah, it, I, I feel like my brain's most active at like between three and five in the morning, and you're there, you're in a light subconscious sleep, and I'd already built the board, start to finish in my factory mentally with all the challenges of using the tools and all that sort of stuff before I even went out and asked about what carbon fiber was. But it, it came to me like in that, sort of, and it's other ideas, heaps of ideas that come to me and I haven't acted upon them, but that was one that I saw and I woke up and went and acted on it. And a week later I was building my first prototype. Um, a lot of Google researching, and but I just had the drive at that particular time to, to focus and go after that one idea. and. It was, it, for me, it was already built in my head. I just had to go do it. So the whole thing, you woke up four in the morning, was it like the movies where you bolt up right in bed? No, not really. You, you kind of just go back to sleep and you're like just kind of chilled and then you wake up at like 6.30 thinking about the surf and you're like, oh, yeah, that's right. There's that idea. All right. Oh, no, I've got to go after this one. This you one's sketch it out over breakfast or No, nah, ideas, I, I don't really sketch much. I, ideas are in my head, they're in my head. So I think you, you do learn that as a surfboard shaper. You learn to really combine a lot of elements of two-dimensional sort of visions into a three-dimensional product. It's it, Especially when we design, we design in two dimensions, but you're seeing a third a three-dimensional product in your head when, you, when you're looking at that screen. So I think it's a skill that you do of our particular thing that we do that you end up learning about and you get, you get better at doing that. So, I mean, there's a lot of other, I suppose, careers in the industries and jobs that you will learn a certain set of skills that you get really good at doing but that's that's um for me it's it's you just remember it it's all in your head when you are crewing up when you're staffing when you start when it comes time to like you're a one-man show for a long time yep. you're you're 22 when you got your own factory which yep. is a it's a huge thing for anyone yep. to be signing a lease of that size yep. let alone when you're 22 and you have been running a cash business until yep. then when you started to have to recruit other people did you know what kind of people you were looking for? Were you looking for other people that looked at the world in the positive energy kind of way? Not really. I think that's my biggest weakness is, is actually communicating and interacting with other people. I'm, I've, I've been taught, you know, and it's probably a strong trait in my family, um, good or bad, to, to kind of be almost selfish and focused and very, you know, driven with what you do and in your own lane and just that's, that's it, just stay in that. And um, there was my, and it still is one, probably one of the, my biggest challenges is identifying the right people to bring into the business. And I'm lucky that I have had some amazing people work with me. And Shingo, who's my second employee, he still works in the business. So that's a, it's a long-standing sort of work relationship with with people in, in the business. And I, I'm slowly getting better at identifying those particular traits and and being able to sort of talk to people and get to know people in a professional sense, but also like, are they going to be the right fit for our company? And, um, but I mean, I, a lot of respect to people who do work in HR, who are able to find those people and identify how they might be the right fit for, for a certain company. 
And I do read a lot about that. You, you see like the companies like the big companies like Google's that have these amazing workplace sort of environments where you're like, wow, imagine having a factory like that yeah. where, where you could offer one day a week that the guys just built their own boards and were super creative and got to surf and do all of that. Um, and I'd love to get there at some point, but we've got to grow as an industry to get to that point, to be able to offer that to the people that work in our industry. And the only way we're going to grow is through innovation and innovative ways and progressions where we can build a better margin into the business model, keep the consumer stoked and, and have them happy with what they're paying for the product, so giving better value to the customer. And over time, we will end up in a space potentially where we're a very healthy industry, we'll recognise industry and, and you can attract some very sort of like talented people that sort of have great careers for their families and their lives in our industry. You we already have the base, we've got the basics of it. Yeah. We, there's a lot of great people in our industry who love what they do but we do have a lot of progression to, to go through as an industry. So you'll, you look at the entire surf industry versus just your own company? I look at surfboard industry. Obviously, I do re look at the surfing industry, which is like the clothing, apparel, wetsuits and all products related to surfing. But I'm talking more specifically to the surfboard industry because mm. we're the heartbeat of our industry. Without the surfboard, there's no surfing. You know, there's beach culture, there's swimming, there's lifesaving, there's nippers, there's all of that, but there's not surfing without the surfboard. So we sit at the, the heart of our industry and it's really interesting. Like you look at the Formula One industry and it's like the brands that are making the product, which is the cars, they run and own their industries. So they're able to you know, run a business model on the back end of that where they're the most successful people in their industry. It's not the people selling you know, the T-shirt or the apparel based on the, the automotive industry. It's the people building the car. Whereas in the surfboard industry or the surfing industry, it's completely opposite. The surfboard shapers, and I'm not crying poor here, we've got to do the work to, to obviously innovate and progress our industry. But the people who are sort of, you know, obviously capitalising on the surfing industry are the people making the wetsuits, the T-shirts and the board shorts. Whereas as the surfboard brand and building the product, that, it's, it's very different to another industry. So golf is another one that you can look at. You know, people building the golf balls and the clubs are the people who are leading their industry. They make apparel on the back end of that. We're completely different. So we've got a long way to go. They're, so it's they're almost, my big picture visions that I may get to one day. No, but, but I like, I'm just trying to think about it in something that I could, you know, uh, relatable. Like, like I said, I don't surf quite as much as I used to, but um, like still, you know, the people that make the bicycles are the people that make all the money. Yep. Right. So think not, about not the people that make the clothes. Yeah. So, so it's, it's wild when you talk about it that way. When you talk about the people that make the board shorts and the t-shirts and the thongs are making more money than the guy in the photo, you know, the like, the actual person that's making the reason you want the board shorts and t-shirts and the thongs. Exactly right. So you can align yourself with this particular thing. Yep. Right. Okay. Yeah. So it's it's just the way our industry has evolved, and it's nothing wrong yeah. with that. But there's an opportunity, is what I see. Yeah. For the surfboard industry to progress and yeah. grow. So that is exciting for me because I see that opportunity. You, you, you've got obviously a design-fed mind. You've got yep. a, a brain that looks at the world in, in a, in, in, with a Z-axis as well because you're in a three-dimensional world. Yep. How does that influence the way – I mean, I guess one of my, one of my favourite books is a guy called American Icon, which is about Alan Mulally who saved Ford. He was a former Boeing 
uh, uh, systems engineer. Yep. So he would, uh, when they were, uh, before they were fly-by-wire, he would hardwire the 747 cockpits. He would design the entire systems that would run a 747. So then when it comes to standing in front of a business and looking at the model, it's like, this is ridiculous. These systems are shit. Yep. And he redesigned the whole thing. And, yep. you know, they were the only one of the big three who didn't take any money from the government. It's a really fascinating read. Yeah. When you look at the business model do you of the surf industry, do you look at it differently from other people because of what you do? I'm sure there's other people out there who see this. Um, the hardest thing is, like, how do you act upon it and how do you make a change? Because a lot of people have tried and they try to throw technologies at the industry and they fail and they, they don't all come together. Um, and... You know, I could throw another technology out in the industry and fail at it too. There's no, like, clear reasons and, and sort of formula to, like, doing it. But I definitely, I mean, I just, I personally just see the opportunities. I, I never a- actually worked for another circle company that or as another shaper. So I've grown in my career just seeing it how I see it. I, I've taught myself how to make a board, how I've learned to make a board, not how everyone else has done it. So I've always kind of had that sort of sideline direction we've had that I've been going that hasn't really necessarily been too influenced by all the other people in our industry and how they do it. And so, I mean, I just keep following that path of what I like to do. And I'm interested in technology. So I love, you know, designing and developing a new back-end system that runs our manufacturing or integrates between our e-commerce platform and, and our manufacturing systems or our accounting platforms. Like, to me, that's, like, super exciting. I love to innovate and design on all levels of the business and that's probably what interests me the most so i see the strengths of what we are as a company not just purely in the product and the actual circle that you're writing it's how we're bringing that to the customer and the experience that we're bringing to that customer and a great example of a big a long-term vision that i've had that i finally got to bring to market after a long time is the hs studio where you can go online and and you can see a board that you're customising in full 360-degree pinch-and-zoom format, and you can customise all the features of the board and see your board in, a, in the same format that I would design your board in a, in a full 3D render. And, you know, Nike ID is an example of customising your shoe, but it's on eight set different sort of angles. This is full, full rendered 360-degree angle. And for me, that's part of that customer experience of seeing what they want to get and see it in the most true-to-life form on a computer screen. But also making sure that you as a company can then provide the product. So when it shows up at their front door yep. and they've bought a surfboard without ever having visited the shaper, yep. that it's exactly what they yeah. are after. and that's a huge challenge. We don't always get it right. I'm, I'm first to admit that because there's actually 6 million different variations you can order on that, on that platform. That's a lot. So you've got to think of a team of like 10 guys in Monavale who are building those boards how many variations they got to be aware of through mm. through the you know the twenty odd processes that the board will go through, yeah. and to pile all those variables together and get that right, that is the biggest challenge I see in building surfboards. And there's a very, there if I had more money, there's actually a very simplistic way to use the technology to control that even more so than, you know, than I am right now. Um, and I chip away at that dream. You know what I mean? And my dream is a pretty big picture dream and I feel like they are some of those things that I do get to sort of ticking off, like they might take me six, seven years to get to them. But when you tick them off and you see them them working, for me that's one of the most exciting things in the back end of the business that I get stoked about. No one else will ever see that, you know what I mean? You, you're never going to do a story or anyone, no one's really going to read about that in a, in a magazine article. But they're the things where I sort of see, I see, start to see them play out and not only the customer's experience, a better experience, but also my staff 
you know, have their lives a lot easily, easier in, in the business and they can focus on certain things better more. That's when I sit back and go, oh, how cool is that? That's working now. That was an idea seven years ago. So, I mean, you've got to be pretty persistent and, like, and wait for the right time sometimes. Sometimes the, the timing is, is sort of is out with certain things. And, I, and it's interesting because I, when I, you know, in my book, New Wave Vision, I, I got to interview some amazing people in that book. And Noel Gordon, who's one of the co-founders of Google Maps, talked about the timing of, you know, innovating maps to bring them onto the web and onto your devices is like back in the late 90s, no one knew what the internet was. So that was the wrong time to actually go and put maps on the internet. People were already doing that. But they came and innovated in the early 2000s and, and brought it to market. I, I forget which year, but it was early 2000s. And they brought it to the web and it was just the right timing. They had the product. They got the right product in the right format to then connect with people to for them to understand oh, this is what the internet can be used for. This makes sense because the, the dot-com crash happened in, you know, early 2000 and it's like it all just blew up, you know, everyone was throwing money into the internet but no one knew how to use it. So it was after it failed basically that he was already working on the innovation and then when it was starting to build back up, that's when it was all coming to market. Mm-hmm. And I feel that certain timings and everything in your business really, you know, you can't control it you kind of got to be a little bit lucky with it but sometimes you got to be focusing on things against the grain and that's what I was probably focusing on when I was you know a kid 20 27 years old 26 talking about technology and ideas new materials that's when the the, the GFC hit you know no one the whole surplus market went basically stopped all the retailers were like I'm not buying any more surplus I've got 300 surplus in my shop I don't need any more because I can't afford to buy any more and I'm just going to sell these off. So for like a couple of years, no one was buying surfboards. And there's me like singing loud, hey, check out this new technology. No one wanted to hear about it. But I was able to focus and get better at building the technology in sort of an off time. So when the market started to come back up, I was there already learning. I'd learned a lot of lessons already. And I was getting to the point I'd failed in the first business model. And then I was like, figuring it out in the second business model with Global Surf Industries and building, you know, the boards in Thailand. And I came as the industry and started to really start, start to ramp back up again. But I was there ready with a new product. There's two, two things I want to ask you about. I'll start with failing. Yep. You've mentioned failing a few times, uh, particularly um, when you're, you know, nearly bankrupt and then when, you know, things weren't working, when your timing was out. What have you learned about what it is to fail and how do you feel when you can feel a failure coming on now? Um, I feel like failure makes you more wise. It, it teaches you like what not to do. And you've got to be in, like I said before, you've got to see failure as an opportunity to learn and become better at what you do. So, um, and as you sort of, you know, remember failure, you'll see the signs of like, say, in a certain department in your business, you'll see like, you would have failed in it a couple of times already. So you start to see like, oh, hey, I can see that starting to happen now. And you'll remember that. So you'll be onto that one before it even gets the chance to fail. So it's just repetitively failing every single day across all parts of what you do. And you learn from that. And you use those as building blocks to, to obviously making the right decisions. But for a lot of forward. people, for a lot of people who would love to start some sort of global brand that you have, the very fear of those failures is what's stopping them from starting. Well, first of all, you don't start a global brand, generally. You start 
with the first person that you sell the thing to and then it starts to build and grow from there. And I think that's, you can have a vision of a global brand, but focus on what's right in front of you right there and then. And it's going to take time to get to that global brand. So just, you can start small. You don't have to start, like you can have the idea. It's like, all right, I've got this amazing new web idea. It's going to be this. It can, everyone in the world can do this. You're generally not going to start by trying to tackle, everyone in the world is going to buy this from the get-go. I mean, that's going to need a huge team of, huge resources and everyone to come together at the right time in every department of that business to launch globally like that. Start it small. Start it and build it. If it's a great idea, it will build quickly. And you've got to get all those elements right to, to sort of then progress from this size to the next size to the next size. For me, in my sort of business, the growth has been extremely slow. It's 20 years this year that I've been in business. So um, it's kind of until it was about 2013 where we started to experience extreme amounts of growth, like a thousand percent of growth in one year. And but I've been sort of like chipping away, like improving all these back end parts of my business in the hope that one day the dream might start to eventuate and sort of sort of come together. And so I feel like I was kind of ready for a lot of that growth. But you know, it's you know. Growth is sometimes a long-term sort of is picture and you will go through sort of cycles and ups and downs and I feel like that's the natural cause of what mm. you're going to go through in business and if you focus on that too much, I feel like I just try and focus on being the best that I can across all the different areas more on a day-to-day basis and then with the idea of like maybe where I want to get to. Is that what kept you going for 20 years? Yeah, it'll keep me going until I'm... Some can't even lift a surfform or a planer anymore or a, a, a shape. I mean, hopefully we're not using those tools in, in another 40, 50 years' time. But, um, I mean, like I don't think I'll ever lose the urge to continue to design surfboards and relate that back to my experiences surfing. And I feel that there's always going to be a constant evolution within, you know, anything that you do. So for mm. me, I love to design things and I love to, to stay focused as well in what I'm working on. I learned that also quite early on is like not to get too distracted with a million things going on. So, you know, for me, I see a a direction as being, you know, designing and working on designing and innovating products that you use around from going to the beach and surfing. So start to finish, you know, wake up in the morning to going out and surfing, to traveling, to coming back. If there's, I feel that I might have a design idea or a product that I could innovate that could better the experience, then that's something I might do. What about, we have something in common that we both dropped out of university. Yeah. What was going through, because a lot of people who are listening to this may be either considering the same thing or feel, and I felt shit about it for a long time, or may be feeling bad about dropping out of uni. What would you say to people who might be considering that or have done it and feel kind of bad about it? I mean, you've got to weigh up, like, your direction and your opportunities of, like, what is what are you doing all this for? If you're just doing it because you just want to get that degree and that piece of paper at the end of the day, like, and you don't know what else to do, like maybe it's a good thing just to continue and get that piece of paper until you're ready to figure out what you want to do. For me, I did my motivation to go to uni was shut my mum up from hassling me, and also I got government assistance so I could pay for an apartment on the beach at Monaval, and um, I was able to, you know capitalise on a government initiative to, to pay people to, to go and study. I was also interested to see, like, what might I learn more than what I learnt at school? I, I, was, I was pretty pessimistic about, you know, like, is this what I really want to do? 
No, I'd already made my mind up. I was building surfboards. That's what I wanted to do. I, I enjoyed that like immensely. And so I went to uni at La Trobe University in the Sydney campus and I did year one and, I mean, the subjects were so damn boring. They were exactly what I did in high school and I'd, utilize, and I'd used all those skills in my business and I was just doing that. So that's kind of like what you would be learning for to go in and, you know, work in a business or do that sort of stuff. So for me, my motivation was to see what I might learn, you know, sort of keep parents happy and make it, you know, pay for an apartment and, you know, rent apartment that is not paid off um, and like just kind of see where, what it was, you know what I mean? At least I tried it. Like I said before, you just got to try things. I wasn't very too motivated to do it, but I did it. And I got into the second year and I, I did a statistics class and I was shaping surfboards in Indonesia for two months throughout that whole, you know, semester. And I came in and did one week of stats and, and sort of had to sit the exam. And I actually got a distinction in that subject, my best <laughs> subject. But that's because it was natural to me to do that. And I realised, I was like, look, I'm sitting in these classes and I'm not really learning anything because it's like I prefer to be more focused in my learning and learn exactly what I need to learn at the right time in my business and I'll learn that for myself. You can self-learn these days pretty easily. Um, so I think like for me, it, it didn't relate to, you know, enhancing my opportunities, I don't feel. You know, I, I don't – when I finished up, I didn't think anything of it because it meant nothing to me right. at that point. So for someone else sitting there, like, I think weighing up, like, what direction might you go? Like, I mean, you can't go get your, you know, your, be on the, get your bath to be a lawyer or something like that without a degree, I don't, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So, like, certain or you can't become a doctor without, you know, those qualifications. So, I mean, depending on what you're doing, yeah, it might just have to be the path that you get there. Like, you can't build surfboards and be a, a surfboard builder or without going and building shitloads of surfboards and fucking up a million times and getting better like it's a trade you know what i mean and it's a very specific and niche trade and you, the skills that you learn there you're not going to learn anywhere else so you're going to have to go there for five years and be paid pretty average money and get better and better and to the point where you get really good at maybe one skill and then in australia you can earn anywhere between 50 to 100 grand doing that process you know it might just be sanding surfboards and you get 80 grand a year that's kind of that career path you know for something else like a carpenter or an electrician, they've got to do a bit of TAFE. They've got to, you know, be, you know, apprenticeship and they've got to work for some until they can be a licensed electrician. There's just different career paths for different things. And if university is one of those career paths to go down, then great. And if you don't know what to do, I mean, at least try it. It's nothing wrong with trying it. It can't hurt and you're going to learn something from that and you might learn what you don't want. And that's sometimes just as valuable as learning what you do want. You seem to have been uh, a solo operator, a very driven man that, I mean, you're clearly very charismatic. People are keen to follow you into battle. What did you have to learn about yourself or what did you notice starting to change about yourself when uh, your wife is here, she's sitting on the couch? Um, what did you notice change about yourself once you started to bring another person into, into this world of yours? Um, my terrible communication skills, which I kind of semi-knew about, but I mean, I... Being in, in business together and in being in a relationship together forces you to be very open about, like, what's going on. You have to communicate really well and you've got to sort of just, I mean, any issues can't be issues underlying there. You've got to raise and bring those issues, to, you know, to and deal with them right then and there. And, and my wife is very, very good at that and she's taught me how to do that and I'm still learning how to do that more and more. Um, but it's, it's you've got to be... You know, committed, you've got to also, you know, you've got to stand your ground, but then you also got to sort of 
also be, you know, uh, what's, I don't know the right, right word, but like you, you got to be prepared to stand by them and sort of accept that, you know, you got to sort of compromise a lot too, you know what I mean? Like, and you got to sort of let them flourish with what their strengths are and they've also got to return that in favour. And, and I think Danny and I do that quite well. We learn, we don't always get it right. When we have plenty of times where we're frigging yelling at each other. It's like, it must be, if you're flying the wall, it'd be pretty funny to watch, I reckon, some days. But, you know, I, I get in my little narky moods and I'm like little, I get anxious when she's throwing me into this rad, you know, PR opportunity. And I'm like, oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. What am I doing talking in front of like 500 people? And I, she's like, shut up. You, you can talk. Just do that. So it's like, it doesn't necessarily calm the nerves or the anxiety that you might get, but she's a huge supporter. And I think that's, at the end of the day, you got to you support your partner and you got to back them 100%. And that's what I've learned. You know what I mean? We've learned how to do that together. And being in business together has forced us to be get really good at doing that. Whereas I think if we were in our separate jobs and, and you know, just came together on our personal lives, we wouldn't be forced to have to deal with some of those more confronting situations as, as much as what we do. So I think it's been an amazing thing for us and it's helped grow our relationship and our bond and, and our friendship and um, it's, it's led us down a path which we both agreed that we wanted to go where we can do this together. And, you know, the brand has grown immensely since Danny has got involved and, and her skills and her talent have really shone through in all the projects that we've worked on and I'm just as proud to sit here today to, to show that, you know, the brand today is, is just as much Danny's personality as it is my personality, even though she's, she's not a surfer. Loves the beach, loves the beach culture, and I'm, you know, throwing her into a couple of sessions and, and she stands up and enjoys it for what it is. Tandem, tandem surfing is actually what we enjoy most doing on a stand-up paddleboard. But, you know, that's something that I'm proud of. It's one thing that I was really a little bit nervous of is that, can Danny actually come into this business and feel like it's hers and she's part of it and she can relate to what we actually do. And I feel like she has, she's put her spin on it. And, and I'm sure a lot of people out there who know us and uh, will know the projects that she's led and charged. And I'm just as proud to, to be sort of, you know, basically her partner in crime with her leading the charge on those projects and myself also leading my projects that I do too. So um, I think that's the beauty of like, working to each other's strengths and supporting each other in your weaknesses. So, yeah, I mean, don't always get it right. So that sounded really like it's, it works well. Um, we do have to work hard to make it work like that. Um, so it's not always rosy, but, yeah. Mate, come on. I've, all I do is follow people on Instagram and everything's awesome all the <laughs> yeah. time. It's a life of smoothies and sunsets and yeah. party and besties and, you know, it's interesting that, that you say that because so much of uh, our forward and public-facing lives these days is the greatest hits reel, yep. is what we choose to show on the Instagram or the Snapchat. Yep. It is the great moments that we have cropped and Photoshopped and set up and, you know, adjusted and, and whatever yep. and captioned and yeah. tagged with a great geolocation. It's so curated, like what yeah. that is. But for me, like, the book was one of my opportunity to actually, and it's it's not because I've reached a certain point in my career or anything, because I've got a shitload of, uh, you know, work to do in my career. It was, it's a book to, to be honest and to show the real side of being in the business. Yeah. And and I feel like I've always learned through stories and I've, I've watched and been influenced by a lot of people and, and sort of been inspired by a lot of people. And like, I feel that showing the real side of building a business from a young person and being in business for 20 years, like showing all those failures and all those lessons and show how they actually come together and you do get the wins, 
it kind of it, like when I read back and I'm like, oh, I was such an idiot back then. Oh, I've done this and done that, but then oh, this worked out. Yeah. So I think that's it's the real side and it's a it's an honest account of where I've gone wrong, how that's led to me making maybe better decisions down the track, and you know, I, I mean, I've still got a long way to go. So yeah, let's. If you were, when you look at those 15-year-old kids you spoke to yep. uh, earlier, those 15-year-old business students, when you look at how much, I mean, it's a different planet that we live on now, 20 yeah. years later, all right? The, the way that we talk to each other, the way that we market to each other, the, the products that people need are, are completely different. What would you say if you were a young guy or girl starting something at 15, 16, what would you say to them about what would be the best path that to travel down um i don't think there's any best path except for just getting involved in every single thing and 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 sort of seeing how that might relate to the idea that you have like for me i coded my first website in 1997 it was done on geocd's platform and which became yahoo and that was before friggin' anyone knew what it like websites and i came home and showed my mum a thing that i coded like this haydenshapes.com and she's like uh what's that i'm like oh i built my own website and um, so, you know, I was just trying it. I no real, I mean, there was kind of a purpose, but yeah, I was just trying it. So I think in today's world, I mean, technology's only made it so easy to kind of combine a lot of different sort of plug-in apps and, and ecosystems of things that, you've, that you need to run a business or, or, or grow your career. Um, and so you just got to find out how meaningful those things can be to like helping you progress in whatever you're doing. So if you're building on designing a product, like how am I going to get that product to market? And there's, there's amazing companies out there who have platforms designed and built to, to get the most connected sort of products sort of designed and manufactured in the world these today. So there's like, I mean, there's almost something out there for any idea that you have. And the opportunity lies to, to build something for something that isn't out there. So, I mean, you just got to search for those things and and kind of, set those foundations and I'd say you want to base those foundations on what your your passion is and what your interests are and that's very cliche you always hear that word passion and all that but honestly but like listen to you you're just you've been I've asked eight questions in the last hour you've just been <laughs> frothing about something that you love yeah I mean at the end of the day I do love that love what I do and I mean it, it might I might uh I mean this is just part of my life I mean I, I don't see having life any other way I, it's you know I enjoy it so and I enjoy getting involved in all the different areas and I, you probably hear that where I, I try lots of different things out and I think that's the best thing is and you'll find where you are more interested in just focus on those things because that's when your true sort of sort of commitment personality and passion will come through in the end result so and yeah just 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 do that and you'll figure it out I figured it out. I mean, anyone can figure it out. You just got to keep at it. <laughs> Thanks for coming around, man. Staked. Unreal. I'm going to take your photo, okay? Sounds good. That was Hayden Cox. If you liked what you heard, you can find him on Twitter. Let him know at Hayden Shapes, H-A-Y-D-E-N-S-H-A-P-E-S. Great bloke, absolutely lovely bloke. Go get his book. It's called New Way Vision. Um, big thanks to everyone that supported the show on Patreon this week. As I said, new episode, new exclusive episode coming in the next couple of days. Keep an eye on your inbox um, in your email, whichever email you use to, to support the show. 
Uh, that is the email that I'll send you the link on. It's an RSS link, and you should be able to find it, and everything should be dandy. Uh, thanks heaps for listening. Thank you so much for all the support. Thanks for all the emails. Thanks for all the podsies. Thank you so much for all the podsies. That's a photograph taken with the phone you're listening to this on right now. Just snap a photo and either tag me on it uh, on Instagram or Twitter or uh, email it to me. Send Osher email at gmail.com. Thanks heaps for listening. I love you like the deserts love the rain. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. 